This is an ABC podcast. Hello, welcome to PM. I'm Samantha Donovan, coming to you from the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation in Melbourne. Tonight, Australia is getting nuclear-powered submarines in the next decade. The details of the multi-billion dollar AUKUS subs deal are revealed. So why does Australia need to spend so much on undersea weapons of war? We'll look at the cost of defending the nation. One nuclear submarine alone would solve the housing crisis in New South Wales. The country has to survive. Uh, That's the thing. And uh, we do live in a world where, technically speaking, international legal systems were created which protected sovereignty. But they're being honoured as much in the breach as they have been in the observance. And a DNA study raises hopes of better treatment for endometriosis, the disease that causes debilitating pain in thousands of Australian women. First tonight to the landmark submarine deal between Australia, the US and the UK. The federal government says it has no choice but to spend an estimated $368 billion on nuclear-powered submarines for Australia's Defence Force over the next three decades. As expected, the first subs will come from the US, giving Australia some time to gear up to build British-designed boats here. Stephanie Smale prepared this report. Anthony Albanese, Joe Biden and Rishi Sunak arrived with fanfare, then stood united, ready to deliver the details of their plan to defend the Indo-Pacific. The AUKUS agreement we confirm here in San Diego represents the biggest single investment in Australia's defence capability in all of our history. The United States can ask for no better partners in the Indo-Pacific where so much of our shared future will be written. It's called the AUKUS Defence and Security Pact. Under the plan, Australia will get three Virginia-class submarines by early next decade, as long as the US Congress approves it, and two more after that if needed. This is the first time in 65 years and only the second time in history that the United States has shared its nuclear propulsion technology and we thank you for it. A fleet of eight submarines will be built in Adelaide, although some might come from British shipyards if needed. The UK's submarine technology and skills will be crucial in the rollout. Britain's Prime Minister Rishi Sunak has spelled out the threats that have prompted the country's cooperation. In the last 18 months, the challenges we face have only grown. Russia's illegal invasion of Ukraine, China's growing assertiveness, the destabilising behaviour of Iran and North Korea all threaten to create a world defined by danger, disorder and division. China has condemned the AUKUS Security and Defence Pact, declaring it an illegal act of nuclear proliferation. But in announcing the plan, the US President Joe Biden has stressed again the submarines are nuclear-powered, not armed with nuclear weapons. These boats will not have any nuclear weapons of any kind on them. The submarine plan could cost Australian taxpayers up to $368 billion between now and the mid-2050s. But the acting Prime Minister, Richard Miles, says it's spending for safety. We are witnessing the biggest 
conventional military build-up that we have seen since the end of the Second World War. And it's happening within our region. And it is not Australia which is doing that. And we need to respond to this. A failure to do so would see us be condemned by history. Richard Marles says the highly enriched uranium used in the submarine reactors will be kept in purpose-built facilities on defence land. So the people are clear, we're talking about the first reactor needing to be dealt with in the 2050s, yes. so this is a long way into the future, but, but we need to be planning for that. The opposition leader, Peter Dutton, isn't convinced with the federal government's claims the cost of the submarines is covered. It's not credible for the government to say that there's no net impact, even over the forward estimates. And we can't allow Labor to go back to a circumstance where they're going to cannibalise Army or Navy or Air Force uh, to pay for this. And so there is an honest conversation that the government has to have. There's no magic pudding. There's no way in which you can sugarcoat it. There is extra money that needs to be spent in defence. The former ambassador to the United States, Joe Hockey, argues the spending is a no-brainer as tensions rise with China in particular. We want to be in a position where we are not threatened. We want to be in a position where we can stand up to the bully. And we are doing that. Joe Hockey, Australia's former ambassador to the United States. Stephanie Smale with that report. Pacifists are decrying the government's decision to invest so much on upgrading our defence capabilities. They'd rather see the hundreds of billions of dollars earmarked for new submarines spent on health and housing and argue any threat to Australia's sovereignty can be managed by better diplomacy. Oliver Gordon reports. Pacifist Annette Brownlee can think of plenty of other ways to spend more than $300 billion. One nuclear submarine alone would solve the housing crisis in New South Wales. Health, you know, we've got ambulances ramping at hospitals. We don't have enough nurses. We don't have enough teachers. The chairperson of the Independent and Peaceful Australia Network has recently joined protests against AUKUS. It's promoting an arms race. It's destabilising rather than stabilising. And it's certainly threatening peace rather than promoting peace. Some would say the best way to maintain peace is to arm Australia so that China or any other actor will not invade us. What would you say to them? I would say that's a, a, just a really huge mistake to think that we, we build peace through arming up. The best way for us to be secure is to have good relations with our neighbours. Anti-war advocates are also concerned about the level of public scrutiny the AUKUS submarine deal has had. Australians for War Powers reform spokesperson Dr Alison Brunoski says that's partly due to the fact the AUKUS policy enjoys broadly bipartisan support. And that means that they don't have to try to persuade the Australian public of the merits of what it is that they want to do or even reveal the detail. And they claim that this is all about uh, security and so on, but in fact, it's giving them carte blanche to do whatever they decide. Critics of your viewpoint would say it's good that we have a uh, bipartisan approach to something as important as defence and national security, but you would disagree with them? I would, except that when one is already at war, and when a country is at war, you would certainly want to have uh, bipartisanship in the war effort. But we are not at war and we don't need to be at war 
And what is being proposed now is more likely to result in a war than not, because we are, on behalf of the United States, deliberately provoking China. So are the pacifists right? Should we be directing the hundreds of billions of dollars earmarked for new submarines into housing and health, and spending more energy building ties with potential adversaries? Kim Beasley is the former Labor Defence Minister. Very difficult to be a pacifist in Ukraine. He says the investment is justified from a geopolitical standpoint. There is, again, in the world... People who feel they have their capacity or the right to impose themselves on others. We don't actually happen to be a country like that, but we do inhabit a globe in which such countries exist and that there's nothing that we can do about it. But we, but what we can do is make sure that they don't threaten us. And again, that's what this is about. He doesn't think the country is overspending on defence. It was 9% of the budget in my day. I think it's down to about 6% of the budget now. And so we spend humongously more. We spend almost as much on the uh, disabilities insurance as we do on defence. So uh, there's always somebody wandering around saying, oh, it'd be so much better if we spent it on this or that hospital rather than this or that aircraft or whatever. And uh, the truth of the matter is we do spend it on this or that hospital. And then we have a discussion and a deep thought about whether we'll spend it on this or that aircraft. So the country has to survive. Uh, That's the thing. Defence expert and former journalist Michael Shoebridge agrees housing and health spending is important, but says existential threats can't be ignored. None of those needs can be met if Australia isn't secure. He points to the recent actions of Chinese leader Xi Jinping as justification for a bolstering of our defence capabilities. He's already used his military to uh, take control of disputed parts of the South China Sea and build military bases there. Michael Shoebridge says ultimately he wants world peace too. He just doesn't think halting defence spending is the way to get there. So I've got the same aim as some of the pacifist voices that you'll be talking to, but I, I look at the world as we have it and not as maybe some more rosier views would like it to be. Defence expert Michael Shoebridge, Oliver Gordon, with that report. The Australian Navy will need to recruit hundreds of sailors to crew the nuclear-powered submarines. Our existing Collins-class subs have a crew of 42, but it's expected the Australian-built boats will need more than 100 on board. So is it time to join the Navy? Angus Randall takes a look. Retired submariner David Strangwood served more than 40 years in the Navy. Much of that was spent underwater. It can be exciting. It can also, you know, be long and, and tedious. But, you know, that's the same as anything. Yes, you just head off and do whatever job the submarine's been uh, directed to do. He's the president of the Submarines Association Australia. He says the next generation of naval officers have an incredible opportunity to work on a nuclear sub. I think it'll be a pretty exciting time. You know, opportunities to, to train, it seems like, both in America and the UK, as well as obviously learning 
the craft of taking a uh, nuclear submarine to sea. For decades, the Navy has been recruiting and training people to be electrical and mechanical engineers, but nuclear submarines come with another level of complexity. Dr Patrick Burr is a senior lecturer in nuclear engineering at UNSW. He says many of the experts who'll be tasked with operating a nuclear submarine in the 2040s need to start their training now. Uh, they take a long time. We're talking about, you know, a master's degree, often PhD level, and then 10 years for tier two or up to 20 years of knowledge in the field before you can, you can be qualified and have the right expertise to ensure that we can operate and maintain the reactors at a suitable level. In Adelaide, that training will start next year. The University of Adelaide has announced it will launch postgrad courses in nuclear engineering and nuclear propulsion. Associate Professor Eric Fusi teaches marine engineering at the university. We have had a huge interest from students asking us when are we starting to deliver some uh, nuclear engineering or radiation management or naval nuclear propulsion courses, uh, but we haven't started yet. So we wanted to wait for the announcement to be made before saying, yeah, we are ready. At the moment, only around 20 people are graduating in Eric Fusi's marine engineering course. That's after around six years of study. That will need to increase significantly to build enough expertise in the sector. There will be a, a fair bit of interest coming from uh, from students, and we need that because there will be some huge demands from industry, and we won't be able to cope. Once the AUKUS submarines are built in South Australia in the 2040s, they'll head west to Rockingham on the outskirts of Perth. Standing outside WA's South Metro TAFE, State Defence Minister Paul Paplia says young people considering a move into mining can now think nuclear. It means an opportunity for young Western Australians to enter an entirely new career path and know that there is an opportunity there for their entire lives. The next generation of submarines will need at least twice as many people on board. Every crew member, from the captain to the chef, must have some understanding of how the sub operates. The Collins class runs a crew of 42. The Virginia-class subs sent by the US need 134 people on board. We don't know how big the AUKUS subs will be. Dr Alex Bristow is the Deputy Director of Defence Strategy and National Security at the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. We are going to have to get on get our skates on. I mean, I think that people being born now are literally going to be the people who are going to be crewing these these AUKUS boats in the 2040s. So, yeah, there will need to be a sustained drive to to have that pipeline in place and to, to increase recruitment. The ADF already struggles across the services to fulfil its recruitment. He says in order to attract and retain staff, the Defence Force may need to be more flexible rather than expecting a lifetime of service. Probably best to have a career management system where if people do decide to leave the ADF, that's not seen as a terminal decision. There is some recognition that the ADF benefits from the skills that can be brought by people spending maybe a period of time outside and then coming back in and that the structure allows for that. Yeah, some sort of porous boundary that doesn't mean that people are making a terminal career decision to either join or leave and actually um, uh, supports a slightly more fluid career where skills can be learned and built up inside and outside the ADF. Australia will receive three Virginia-class nuclear submarines from the US in the early 2030s, and the first South Australian-built AUKUS sub will be launched in the early 2040s.
Angus Randall reporting. Professor Peter Dean is the Director of Foreign Policy and Defence at the United States Studies Centre at Sydney Uni and was a principal author of Australia's Defence Strategic Review. He agrees developing a workforce to crew and operate the nuclear-powered subs is going to be a huge challenge for Australia. We can't just open the doors up and bring people into the country as skilled migrants and put them straight into a nuclear submarine program. The sensitivity of this technology, I mean, this is some of the world's leading edge technology and the United States has only shared this once before and back in the 1950s with the United Kingdom. So I think probably we'll look at Commonwealth countries, we'll look at people and countries that we have high fidelity with, with their own security and their own backgrounds. And also I think one of the challenges here will be to open up the broader Australian economy to more skilled migration to fill other parts of the economy and then recruit Australians from those areas of the economy that are more easily backfilled into the nuclear submarine task forces and workforce and industry development. Are you concerned about the cost of the nuclear-powered submarines that we've heard today? It's a number I would put big question marks on. Now, we, we know this is based on predictions out to what the economy and inflation and the cost of living would be like in 2054. Now, Treasury proves year on year it struggles to get these numbers right for a year at a time. It's almost impossible for them to get it right over the Ford estimates. So I'm quite sceptical about this being the number in uh, 2054. And the other caveat that I'll add is what we're embarking upon here is the continuous build of nuclear-powered submarines. We won't stop in 2054 at eight, or we shouldn't stop. So realistically, this cost spread actually has to go for another three or four decades after that because of the infrastructure and investment costs. And if you look at the United States, for instance, in the United Kingdom, they're building nuclear-powered submarines in shipyards that were built in the 1950s and the 1960s and are still going strong. So this is a very long-term investment. It's a very big number, but it is a very long-term investment. And I think, again, it's reflective of the concern our government and all three governments share about the era of strategic competition and the risk that we face to the security and sovereignty of our country. And, you know, security is one of those things like oxygen. We often don't notice it until it's no longer there. And the cost of that in an era of great power competition, in an era that's reflective, as we've all seen, of you know the Russian illegal invasion of Ukraine and the consequences of that, where major powers whose interests are not aligned with ours are using force to resolve their issues in the international sphere, you know, what we spend on, on education and health, if you don't have the security for the nation, you can't invest in those other areas as well. And it's always a balancing act. But unfortunately, we're entering an era where we're just going to have to spend more money on defence and security to ensure we can continue to also spend money on the NDIS, on health, on education, on infrastructure and other parts of our economy. Is there any chance, do you think, that the nuclear sub-technology Australia's buying, both from the US and the UK, will be outdated by the 2030s, 40s, 50s? Oh, look, absolutely not. This is cutting-edge technology, 10 to 20-year advancement over any potential adversary. And this is about developing, delivering that capability to Australia and enhancing the United Kingdom capability. And what that will give us is a regional military capability edge in undersea warfare. And that is the most important domain in the maritime, for maritime security for Australia. Nuclear-powered submarines are the, the capital ships of the modern Navy. The Navy is the guardian of our maritime security, and these uh, vessels are, you know, the platform of choice for the Navy to help secure that and provide deterrence.
How does the technology, though, compare to China's nuclear-powered submarines? Well, that, that's very difficult to uh, ascertain because, you know, the Chinese keep this very secret. But what we do know from public available data is the Chinese submarines are good, but the American submarines and the current Australian Collins-class submarines are better technology. And we shouldn't overlook the fact that, you know, that China has built 12 nuclear-powered submarines in the last 15 years, many of them nuclear-armed as well. And by the time we receive the first SSN AUKUS in 2042, the Chinese will be operating in excess of 70 submarines in our region. The Chinese Navy is now the largest Navy in the world, and they've undertaken an unprecedented military expansion, the largest since the Second World War, and they're not doing it with transparency, they're not doing it with open accountability, and they're also progressively using that capability for coercion and force. And so I think this is a prudent response to that rising military capability in our, in our region. And it's a way of Australia contributing towards deterrence in our region in the hope and the belief that we can maintain peace and prosperity for all of us. Professor Peter Dean, he's the Director of Foreign Policy and Defence at the US Studies Centre at Sydney Uni. This is PM, I'm Samantha Donovan. Ahead, concussion in the AFL. As the lawsuits pile up, will the league's multi-million dollar research commitment make a difference? Previously, we didn't have the unfortunate deaths of Shane Tuck and Danny Frawley and others. The playing field has certainly changed a lot. So I think there really needs to be something seriously done in this space. It's estimated one in nine Australian women suffer from endometriosis, a debilitating disease which sees tissue similar to that which lines the uterus grow on other organs. Despite how common it is, very little is known about the condition. Now a global genetic study is offering hope better treatments may soon be available. Isabel Masali has more. When Grace was 16, she encountered the first of many struggles to get a diagnosis for endometriosis. I had really severe abdominal pain and we couldn't work out why. And after a few days in hospital and a whole lot of tests, they decided, oh, surely it's the appendix, we'll just take that out. And they took it out. It was perfectly healthy. I went home and the pain continued until we found another doctor who could diagnose endo. Since then, the now 30-year-old has had several surgeries, but her treatment continues. A good day would be hopefully only feeling a few twinges of pain, almost just like a little tiny prickle of pain. A bad day is that I can't get out of bed, I can't stand up straight, and I'm almost begging to be taken to the hospital because the pain is just out of control and nothing's touching it. The chances are you probably already know someone who has endometriosis. So what exactly is it? Dr Sally Mortlock explains. So very little is known about the causes of endometriosis. We know that it's a disease that occurs when tissue similar to that that lines the inside of the uterus called the endometrium forms lesions outside of the uterus and that is usually accompanied with inflammation and scar tissue and can cause severe pelvic pain and in some cases even infertility. It affects one in nine women and it's estimated to cost the Australian economy about $7.4 billion annually. Dr Mortlock is a genetic analyst with the University of Queensland, one of 24 research institutes across the world who've just completed the largest ever genetic study on endometriosis. 
They compared the DNA code of 60,000 women who have the condition with 700,000 who don't. So we know that endometriosis can run in families and therefore there are genetic factors contributing to the disease. And previous studies have estimated about 50% of the disease risk comes from genetics. So by comparing the DNA code between women with and without the disease, we've been able to identify genomic regions or regions in people's DNA that increase their risk of the disease. And so that's where this study comes in and was able to identify 42 regions in the DNA that increase your risk of getting endometriosis. And so that's more than double the genetic regions that you knew about before, is that right? That's correct. So previously we had an idea of about 17 regions that were associated with endometriosis and now we've been able to double, if not almost threefold, increase that to 42 regions that are now associated with the disease. Dr Mortlock says this study could lead to more in-depth research and hopefully new and targeted treatments. The findings have been welcomed by Donna Chicha, who's been on a mission to raise awareness of the debilitating condition. She's the co-founder of Endometriosis Australia. Finding that genetic element and what is it, you know, can we identify patients earlier? Will it lead to a, a early diagnostic testing? And will it help uh, work out subtypes of endometriosis, which I think is really important to understand? Donna Chitcha says diagnosis can be challenging because a definitive diagnosis requires surgery. And when it comes to treatment, there's no one-size-fits-all approach. She says it's important more is done to improve treatment and diagnosis options because the condition affects sufferers in so many ways, including their health, education, employment and relationships. We were the first country in the world to have a national action plan, so we are making great steps in the right direction, but for the patient living with it every day, nothing seems to have changed. We are still using you know, the same methods that we have before and living in pain and not having a quality of life is just so mentally demoralising, but also why shouldn't we reach our potential? Donna Cheecher, she's a co-founder of Endometriosis Australia. Isabel Masali reporting. Yet another former AFL player has launched legal proceedings against the league today, leading a class action that could include as many as 60 past players. It comes as the AFL launches a new $25 million research project to monitor the long-term effects of head knocks and concussion on its players. Neurologists say it looks like a positive step, but much more work is needed. David Sparks has more. Is it a max rule kick? It is. He has the first goal of the grand final for the Cats. Max Rook was tough, courageous and a key player in Geelong's golden era, winning premiership medallions in 2007 and 2009. Rook's after Les Clark and he got him and he'll get a free kick. But that sterling AFL career has come at a cost. His lawyers say Max Rook suffered life-altering injuries through knocks to the head while playing the game he loved. Michelle Margalit from Margalit Injury Lawyers says he and the other past players in the class action are seeking compensation for their pain and suffering, medical expenses and economic losses. These injuries have been completely life-altering. It's, it's incredibly difficult to live with these adverse effects that just aren't who you really are at your core. Uh, the, the way that you're in a fog, 
the way that, uh, you know, it's hard to think, um, to be irritable when you know you're not that person. It's been very, very difficult for Max and his family. Michelle Margalit says the firm has been approached by more than 60 former players interested in taking part in the class action. She says some could seek damages of up to $2 million. This comes as the AFL launches a new study of brain health. It's committing $25 million to the project and it'll begin recruiting participants for the study this year. Andrew Dillon is the league's executive general manager of football. Speaking on radio station SEN, he defended the league's record. We've got a record of over over 20 plus years of multiple changes that we've made to the laws of the game and our tribunal and MRO system to make the game safer for our players at the elite level, men and women, but also at community football. Professor Alan Pearce is a neuroscientist and a concussion researcher. He's a long-time critic of the AFL's performance on concussion and he's cautious about the league's new research project. You could say that this is a bit of a back-to-the-future moment because we've had a previous announcement from the AFL on large uh, studies on past players, you know, back in 2015, for example, um, and even prior to that. So I'm just hoping that this time that we'll actually see the results actually come through and, and uh, see what, uh, you know, ha- have some good uh, research done. Previously, when there was, uh, re- you know, research announced, we didn't have un- the unfortunate deaths of Shane Tuck and Danny Frawley and others uh, to uh, chronic traumatic encephalopathy or CTE. Uh, and there weren't, as you said, uh, lawsuits uh, being threatened and, and put uh, sort of submitted to courts now. So the, the playing field has certainly changed a lot. Another neurologist is Dr Rowena Mobs at the Australian CTE Biobank. I think we can see a combination of on-field and off-field changes to make these sports safer. I, I am a fan of sport. I want to see these sports continue, but in a safer manner. And I think we've seen glimmers of hope. For example, in, in rugby league as well as AFL and other football codes, where players are starting to really take this issue seriously, they're trying to tackle in a safer way. We're now getting frameworks around in reducing head injury risk in training and considering starting contact at a later age. So these are all good advances, but we're going to have to need need to see the codes come on board in a, a stronger fashion around CTE and not just concussion if we're going to succeed on this issue. The AFL has also launched updated guidelines on how concussion must be managed in its men's and women's leagues. David Sparks reporting. Thanks for joining me for PM. I'm Samantha Donovan. We'll be back at the same time tomorrow. Good night. I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily podcast. In as little as four years, US nuclear-powered attack submarines will be deployed to Australia, the government says, to keep us safe. Today, the ABC's political editor, Andrew Proben, on how fear of China has driven us to the biggest defence investment in our history. Look for the ABC News Daily podcast on the ABC Listener. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.